Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I'm speaking with Michelle Little-Starod, a PhD student at Rutgers, about her research on juvenile delinquency and phones. This is episode 44 of Untenured Tracks. at the moment for my PhD mm-hmm. um, going into my final year I have one chapter already done which is well kind of done um, which is exciting um, and the other thing that I'm excited about is I have been working with a charity that I used to be a part of in the UK um, called Grown Against Violence and we are trying to look at how we digitize some of our curriculum that goes into classrooms um, so that the young people that access it can access it now in kind of COVID times. So um, Growing Against Violence is a um, charity which is a violence prevention charity. It's actually the biggest in Europe and it involves uh, facilitators going into school and talking to kids from the age of about 10 all the way up to the age of like 16 about different factors of violence. It used to be a gang-based charity, but we have moved on from just kind of gang-based violence and we now talk about child sexual exploitation, child trafficking, um, social media, um, and all different factors of violence. Mm -hmm. So although it's kind of sad to be working on something to try and reach out to people who are quite isolated and vulnerable at the moment within COVID times, it's also really exciting to think about how we can extend our service, how we can work together and how we can make sure that young people are still um, accessing support and information. Um, and as part of that, we're also trying to um, support the teachers who are coming across new issues to do with social media all the time, um, especially crime-related issues and victimisation issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of exciting that we are we are doing that. Um, and I actually work with my husband on that mm-hmm. um, as we both worked for the charity. So I used to be part of running the charity. I was also a facilitator and the safeguarding manager. And he was also a facilitator for the for the charity. So it's cool that within this kind of quarantine time, we are like working together to produce videos based on curriculum that I wrote a few years ago with some adaptions, which include some of my newer research that I've been doing in the US. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of cool to like start blending things um, in a way that can reach people. What isn't cool is arguing with my husband over the one word that I hate that he's put into um, a video that he spent hours kind of editing together and making it look really pretty. And then I want that one word removed because I don't agree with it. So that's fun. (laughs) Do you want to say the word or no? (laughs) Well, um, so it was just about, so we were trying to give advice to um, parents about, 
not just removing people's phones. So not just saying, my kid is having a problem with social media. We're scared about grooming. So we're just going to take their phones away from them. Mm-hmm. And my research actually within the US um, suggests that when phones are taken away from kids, especially kids who are involved in serious youth violence or gangs, um, or are involved in the juvenile justice system, taking that phone away actually makes things worse. Mm-hmm. And it can result in them going to extreme measures, uh, extreme measures to get those phones back or get digital access back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, so in his uh, conversation piece about this, which I'd already written, by the way, um, he <laughs> said the word um, admonish. He said, rather than admonishing and just disciplining your child, mm-hmm. and I didn't like that word admonish. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, I wasn't comfortable with it. I don't really know why, but I also wanted to make sure that it's accessible for a wide range of audiences. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't think that there needed to be two words about discipline mm-hmm. within one sentence. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, I'm not sure that that was a big deal or not, but it, it definitely caused some uh, conversations here because it yeah. was right at the end of the video as well, which meant mm-hmm. he had to go and re-edit something, mm-hmm. yeah, in an awkward position. And I don't personally do the editing of the videos myself. That's, like, <laughs> not within my skill set. So. Yeah. yeah. I'm just curious, not trying to cause any, any further <laughs> conflict <laughs> between between the two of you. Um so it's really cool. So, um, so is how do I ask this? On your end of it, are you just um, transforming your research into content that's accessible for parents? Then is that am I understanding you correctly? So, um, so yeah. So I've done like two pieces of uh, research, um, and my aim whenever I do research is to make sure that the research goes back to people that it's going to help and support. Mm -hmm. So sometimes that is practitioners who are working with young people involved in violence or parents or government officials or police officers, whoever it is. Um, And my research has been used to inform the curriculum for growing against violence. So um, we've built sessions around what I found when I was working with Mm -hmm. young people um, who were involved in gangs and how, Mm -hmm they were using social media to commit crimes mm-hmm. also how they were being victimized too mm-hmm. so i did a um a digital ethnography um of young people involved in gangs mm-hmm. and then as part of the kind of findings of that i take that back into the kids but then also to practitioners um i also put on training sessions for police Um, and all sorts of people that anyone basically who's working with kids who might be involved in that. Mm -hmm. In terms of what I want to do is inform them and help them understand what is going on with social media, but from a perspective of the young people to make sure that the aim isn't to just criminalise all of the young people, but actually recognise that as young people and as children, we need to be protecting and safeguarding um, and also consulting them on what's happening rather than making assumptions. Mm-hmm. So um, I guess it's just part of like doing applied research, um, which I think is really important, especially because I come back, I come from a practitioner background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, I don't see the point in doing research that isn't going to be seen or accessed somehow by people that it's going to benefit. Yeah. Um that is uh, a perspective that I have definitely come around towards in the last couple of years. Um, and it was not part of my training when I was working on my PhD. So I definitely appreciate um, what you're doing with that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting what you said about like 
I think a lot of people are trying to walk this line uh, with the pandemic going on, right? About not wanting to look like we're trying to take advantage of stuff, but like using what's happening to recognize that a lot of our systems were way out of date. (laughs) Yeah. So like with CrimCon, right? Um, I had no intention of launching a digital conference this year, but um, once I knew that other people were probably going to be doing it and probably doing it poorly, uh, I had to. I had to like advance my accelerate my schedule by at least a year um, to get this up. And honestly, I've had lots of people say like this is something that should have happened a long time ago. Yes, so, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And people who've uh, been who've been a little mad <laughs> and have borderline accused me of disaster capitalism, which it's not. <laughs> so that's a conversation for another time. Um, yeah, I, I understand that though. I actually um, have had that criticism myself, like this disaster capitalism or. Um, well, academic tourism, yes. for example, um, which has been an issue for when I moved here to the US. Mm-hmm. That is something that I get kind of accused of because people mm-hmm. assume that I moved here just to study violence. And that wasn't really the aim mm-hmm. um, at all. Like I moved here because I was asked to be part of a PhD program or mm-hmm. offered, you know, um, yeah, someone asked me to be a part of it. And so I came and I didn't really know what I was going to study. I knew it was going to build off my work that I'd done in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's interesting is that I do have, so my work in the US has been with girls in the juvenile justice system, mm-hmm. where I've been working with them to to find out how um, phones and social media have brought them into the juvenile justice system. Mm-hmm. So how crimes or victimizations has affected their experience within the juvenile justice system. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, I do have findings that could suggest to local juvenile justice um, providers of ways that they could improve or change their systems to include digital innovation. Mm-hmm. But what's really difficult at the time of COVID is that this almost isn't the right time for me to be coming in and saying, well, what you need to do is A, B, and C. Um, But I'm in a different position within my place within the charity in the UK, where my work has been established for like five, six years, Mm -hmm. and that we already have um, a pattern of using academic work um, for content that can support people. Mm -hmm. And also we're doing it because... Um, organizations are coming to us and saying we really like your content how do we still continue on with that content even though we can't have kids in classrooms like Mm -hmm. how do we access that Mm -hmm. so when I think about like academic tourism and that kind of stuff like I do understand my position position here in the US as some as a place where I need to not necessarily hold back but just wait a little bit Mm -hmm. because people actually don't have time or space or energy or resources right now to kind of take on new information from someone who, although I've been working in the community for over two years, I'm still an outsider Mm -hmm. and I need to do, I need to um, work in a way that supports them and and doesn't look like I'm coming in and kind of telling them what to do or like telling them that I have all the answers. Mm Because that's the other issue with this, like trying to implement digital innovations at the time of COVID everything's such a rapid response we don't actually know what what works and what doesn't Mm -hmm. so i would be uncomfortable suggesting like this is what we do and the whole community we go for it and then it doesn't work or it it may it makes more violence or whatever it does Mm -hmm. Um, especially because i don't know after the next 12 months whether i'm still going to be here so Mm -hmm. i'm not going to have 
the ability to make sure that I'm here to support or continue on with that work. Yeah, no, I I can relate. Um, my university was uh, in a relationship with um, a school in Panama, and so some colleagues and I um, went to Panama City. I went twice. Um, and in addition to like talking to the the school on the grounds there about like what kind of program might we offer, um, we had or I had the opportunity to visit um, a couple of different gang prevention sites in the country. Um, and it was really, really fascinating. Um, but I remember feeling like, and like having like planning sessions before that trip to say like, we, we are not here to tell them what to do. Um, yeah. We, you know, just remember to be like over the top respectful the entire time, um, especially because of the colonial history between the United States and Panama too, right? Like, Mm-hmm. I can remember thinking like, and I'm I'm still kind of upset that the program has fallen apart for reasons well beyond my control. But even some of the anti-American graffiti down there, I remember wishing that I could take students um, just to give like my students from Northeastern Pennsylvania, who many of whom have never really left Northeastern Pennsylvania, the opportunity to see that um, and, and to see kids who are struggling in gangs in a completely different setting from what my students are used to, many of my students are used to seeing. Um, so yeah, just, sorry, went off on a little <laughs> tangent trip down memory, trip down memory lane. I miss Panama a lot. I think about those kids a lot. Um, so, uh, can you talk about your dissertation work at all? Yeah. So, um, my dissertation work is working with girls in the juvenile justice system, um i have been working with the girls for almost two years so i did some volunteer work before i asked anyone whether i could do research um to get to know the community to understand how it operates but also like so people could get to know me so that i wasn't this strange face like walking in and saying please can i research with you um uh, so I did some volunteer work at like after school programs for young people who had been referred to them through the courts. Um, and then I started to just pick up on how many girls were going into the juvenile justice system based on digitally facilitated crimes and victimization. And I wanted to mm-hmm. learn a little bit more about that. Uh-huh. Um, and that's also the route in that I took when I was working with gangs in the UK. Like I would hang out with them, find out what was going on, and then work out which in, which uh, research was going to be best for them, mm-hmm. what was going to be helpful for me to really look into. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been working with 42 girls um, on the research project for about a year now. Um, so that involves doing focus groups at after-school clubs um, and also working with around 11 or 12 girls on a more... Um, personal basis so I've been interviewing them doing uh, unstructured interviews every couple of weeks or every month over a kind of nine month period um, about social media about their phones about pretty much just their experiences mm-hmm. um, with the juvenile justice system and their phones mm-hmm. and their phones kind of become this character within the research uh, which is very uh, interesting to me mm-hmm. um, it's also a different tax that I've been taking with this research compared to the research I did before. The research I did before involved focus groups and interviews with practitioners and then kind of lurking online on social media sites of um, 
12 young people who are involved in gangs. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't allowed to follow any social media accounts um, of the young people I was working with in the classrooms online because of mm-hmm. child protection issues. Yeah. So I had to kind of like lurk online, which I felt really uncomfortable about, um, especially because there was so much trauma online that I was witness to in terms of videos of serious violence, stabbings, shootings, but also massive amounts of videos of like sexual assaults and rapes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt very uncomfortable seeing that they were there and that the young people didn't know that Mm -hmm. I was watching them. And obviously the young people weren't putting those videos there themselves. They were there to get an audience to shame and -hmm. and humiliate the people. And I was contributing to that audience. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I became very uncomfortable with that. So I decided with my research this time, um, the social media content would come from the girls when they wanted to enter it. Mm-hmm. So I um, basically interview the girls and then if they want to show me something on their phone, then they show me. Um, but I don't look at any social media accounts without being invited to look at them. And I only look at them with the young people. So mm-hmm. I do like social, they're not really social media tours. So there is a practice of doing social media tours with young people where they mm-hmm show you around their phone and explain um, what's going on in different social medias. Mm -hmm. But mine is more, I don't know, they're kind of snapshots, I guess. Yeah. Um, They're snapshots that the young people want to show me in terms of, do you like these trainers or these sneakers? Or, oh, this happened the other day. Look at this girl fight that's going on. Um, Or let's talk about Monkey as an app. Mm -hmm. Or let's just all go on Monkey. We'll show you how it works. That mm-hmm. kind of stuff. So I'm not prompting them because I really I realized really early on with one of the girls who I've been working with a lot over the last year or so that me asking to see their phones is actually really problematic. Even if I've spent the time getting to know them, even if um, even if they are comfortable with that in terms of they sign consent forms and all of that. Even just me as an adult asking to see a young person's phone is problematic, but also what it does is it makes the research even more researchy in terms of it puts me in a place of an adult who has authority um, and who is who is actually reflecting or mirroring the position of other adults that have authority, like a parent mm-hmm. or an abusive partner or the courts who also take away their phones. Mm-hmm. So even though I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the phones with them, the act of me asking to look at their phones is something that inscribes power between myself and the young person. So I learned pretty quickly um, after a very long conversation with one of the girls who just kept on asking me, but why do you need to see my phone? But why though? And I was trying to justify it thinking, well, what did I write in my IRB of why I needed to see this phone? And then I started to go down this route of like, oh, maybe she doesn't want to show me the phone because I have opposite demographics from her. Maybe because I'm just like this weird British white lady who she's known for six months and is now just doing something else that's really strange. And she's like, hold on a minute. I don't know who you are. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Maybe you're a police officer. But And as we had this conversation about this, it wasn't that at all. It was just simply that, like, she didn't understand why I would be so interested and why, like, looking at her phone would tell me anything that she couldn't explain herself. Mm-hmm. And I understood pretty quickly that she was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And that actually, although we want to digitally enhance our methods because we have all this information at our fingertips and, and it sounds like a great idea and sometimes it is a great idea, mm-hmm. 
we need to really think carefully about that question that she asked me like but why though but why <laughs> like, but why? <laughs> like it, it was so important to me and like she really taught me a lot and so what I decided to do instead was just just wait for them to show me and if they showed me what was on their phones or showed me little examples actually that was a demonstration of trust mm -hmm. and that was a demonstration that I was a, accepted in some way that whatever they were going to show me on their phone they knew that whatever was going to pop in wasn't going to scare me wasn't going to make me call the police or call their probation officer or wasn't going to End up, end up in this response that they couldn't control and that would mm -hmm. put me firmly back in this kind of adult position of authority mm -hmm. rather than a researcher. Mm -hmm. So, so it's really interesting. Um, how do you how do you get them to trust you in the first place? How do you get them to, to even agree to participate in this project with you? So. Um, I asked some of them this, actually. At the end of the research, like, towards the end, I go through their transcripts with them. So the girls I've been working with a lot, um, I did all their transcripts, and then I sit down with them, and we go through them, and they highlight what's important to them, like what quotes they would use in a conference presentation, like, and I explain like how academia works, all that stuff. And we also, um, we also plan like trainings for practitioners together as well. Mm -hmm. That's slightly different, but... Um, so I asked them in their later interviews, like, why did you decide to do this? Like, mm -hmm. you know, they're not getting paid for this. Yeah. They don't get time out of community service or anything like that. And their responses were really interesting. Some of them were just like, well, we've never spoken to a British person before. And so we thought it would be interesting just yeah. to see who you were um, and to talk to you. And then some of the other girls, it was more... Um, one of the girls said to me, you know, I don't want other girls to go through the experiences that I've been through. So if my story can help someone else, mm -hmm. and also if it can help you, then that's great. Mm -hmm. Which is a really interesting response and in that I hope that the work that we've done together can also help other girls too, not have to have difficult or horrific experiences, either through victimization, but mm -hmm. also within the juvenile justice system. But when she said, like, and if it can also help you, that was kind of a scary response that I wasn't really expecting because really? there's a concern for me always when I'm working with very vulnerable young people about the fact that I'm going to get a PhD out of this. I might get a book out of it. I might get a job. And mm -hmm. really, what do they get out of this? Yeah. Like, I mean, absolutely. They, I think they really benefit from talking about their experiences and, um, Doing that collectively as well in focus mm -hmm. groups, I think, can be really helpful for yeah. kind of support and bearing witness and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And with some of the girls, I've done things like digital safety planning with them and I've taken them to job interviews. Like I've helped mediate between their friends, mm -hmm. those kind of things. But mm -hmm. long term, I am the one that's going to benefit yeah. out of this more than them. And that to me is always like a difficulty with academia and this kind of work. Yeah, that uh, sums up a lot about how I feel about just being involved in academia to begin with. Um, yeah. That's interesting, though. Like, Especially because I I mean, I could be wrong. Maybe there's like loads of research on this, but you, you typically don't see that, that type of behavior from boys as far as like wanting to make sure that people younger than them don't have the same experiences. If I, if I understand correctly, if I remember correctly, usually it's guys who are much older. Um who are justice involved, who are, are now like agreeing to tell their stories and have finally have like a mountain of evidence to suggest that their, um, 
their path through life and the decisions that they made probably weren't for the best and are now willing to uh, speak out and try to help men who are younger than them that that it's teenage girls who have, have reached that point and are like this is this is bad and we need to try to help yeah. people out like that and again like maybe maybe there's research that i'm i'm not aware of but i think it's a really interesting difference yeah i think what's interesting as well is that we don't often ask boys that question in mm. the same way we ask girls i think as part of like a feminist methodology we ask people those questions and we're reflective and reflective with them. Like, what are you getting out of this research? Like, mm-hmm. why are you still involved? Cause I was asking these girls to be involved for a long time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, which is difficult. You know, some of them are people who run away a lot are in and out of detention, different mm-hmm. homes, but yet they consistently stayed involved in the research, which was really incredible on their mm-hmm. part. It was so impressive of them. Yeah. Um, so I think it was really important to ask them like what they got out of this and why it was important and I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I was trained or in my research with the boys and the gangs whether I asked that question. Mm-hmm. But I think I also had a different relationship with those boys because I was there and I'd known some of these boys for like ten years. Mm-hmm. So it was a very different like relationship. Whereas mm-hmm. this is kind of very new. Yeah. Um, and I was a stranger to a lot of the girls, like with the boys. I don't know, it's really hard for me to even assess kind of what they were getting out of it because they'd been there so long. Yeah. So again, it would have been a really odd question for me to ask them, like, why are you involved in this? Because it was... <laughs> yeah. But it's still something yeah. that you can... Uh, I mean, obviously this work is a passion for you, so surely you're going to meet more young men in the future who are justice involved or for whatever reason you know asking them what do they think they're getting out of this or even asking them like how do you consider your past or what would you say to somebody younger than you who went through that or like like maybe not as bluntly but surely there's ways to word that yeah definitely and i think also maybe it's a reflection of their age too right like we don't think of young people as people that can reflect on their past because they are young people. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's got something to do with it too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I would definitely include that question. Mm-hmm. I think maybe we should all include it in our questions, whether they're kids <laughs> or adults. Like, why are you doing this research? Like, especially if we're not paying people, like mm-hmm. this takes up a lot of time for people. So mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, when I, when I teach my criminology students about how to write a lit review the first time, um, I, I tell them their introduction should be so what and who cares. Like you need to address yeah. those two questions, and like on top of the usual, like please don't start your paper off by saying like crime has been a problem since the dawn of time, and <laughs> or yeah. the dictionary defines crime as blah blah blah. Like none of that nonsense. Um, tell me why I should care about this question that you have and and this population and what. Like, why does it matter? And I think actually adding that third question of like, but why, um, to yeah. really get them um, to learn how to drill down on the importance of it. Um, because I mean, most of our students aren't going into academia; they're going to be practitioners in some way, shape, or form. And so, I think the sooner they learn how to like really sell what they're what they're doing, the better. Um, so, could you talk a little bit about the? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, also, for people who are becoming practitioners to learn that question of, but why, though? 
in terms of thinking about the interventions that they're doing like are they doing an intervention because it follows a guidebook that they were given by their employers or are they doing mm-hmm. something that they think will benefit the individual person that they're working with mm-hmm. so to have that question but why though for just practitioners too is so important mm-hmm. or is Even it something they've been doing just seconds. because just because that's what you do <laughs> and and if that's the answer then yeah. that's a that's a whole other you know yes. laundry list of problems and questions that come with it yeah um yeah definitely and i i it's, say it's that yeah. a, a good question to help them reflect as practitioners as well to think about why they are doing things like what the motivation is behind it and who are they trying to please are they trying to <laughs> please their managers when they go in for a review or are they trying to actually meet the needs of the people that are working with mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah um i I live in the county where the kids for cash scandal happened. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Yeah. 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 So I, I have um, a lot of working knowledge of that, and so those questions of like, but why? If you, I think if you ask people working in juvenile probation now, I think their their answers to that would be so fascinating. We'll have to, we'll talk about that off off air though. I don't want to get okay. anybody in trouble. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> So uh, for people who um, aren't familiar with like how how phones and social media might facilitate crime and victimization, could you like walk us through that process a little bit? Um, yes, I almost don't know where to start because there's so much there. Yeah, um, I know it's a it's kind of an unfair giant question. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Uh, well, I can speak to it from um, from my own research, um, especially with the young people. One of the biggest findings I had with the within the UK that is um, is is the same here for the girls here is the use of um, cyber stalking. Mm-hmm. Um, so the use of GPS um, technology. Um, like find my iPhone or app 360 to control young people into doing what you want them to do, mm-hmm. which is um, combined with um, digital collateral. So digital collateral is something that I found within the gangs in the UK. What would they would do is they would film or have pictures of something that the young people would be ashamed of. Mm-hmm. So it could be um, it could be a sexual assault. It could be them talking to police, them talking to a rival, and they would use those digital artifacts as a way to coerce them into further crimes. Mm-hmm. So go and deal these drugs 200 miles away for 10 days in this crack house, or we're going to release this image or video onto social media. And the kids' biggest fear was that this image was going to go onto social media and they couldn't deal with that shame. Not only is it re-traumatizing to them, it's something that they can't get rid of, they can't control, all of those things. They would rather go and commit further crime. And there was evidence even to the point of them actually going and stabbing people um, because they were trying to prevent something from coming out. Mm -hmm. So that is cyber-stalking and kind of um, digital image-based abuse um, that's used to control people into committing crimes. Mm-hmm. But obviously, we also have um, we also have crimes that are committed via like fraud through like apps and um, pay, use of PayPal to kind of launder money, those kind of things, um, setting up people to be beaten up or stabbed or even exploited through kind of text messages or 
um, location sharing. That's also a part of the work that I've done too. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, um, especially for the girls, uh, the uh, digital partner abuse too. Um, so kind of domestic abuse, domestic violence gone online, um, controlling their movements of where they are, who they're talking to, um, you know, FaceTime me to show me which friends you're with. FaceTime me to prove to me that you're at home and you're not at another place. So controlling people's movements in that way. Um, and there's also other things that are not relationship-based, like things like selling drugs. So um, I have some of the girls have become very very good at selling drugs online um, mm-hmm. and also spotting who they're going to sell the drugs to. So deciding based on Facebook profiles who is safe to sell to and who isn't huh. and what type of drugs they would sell some, to someone depending on what they look like. Um, wow. So that kind of stuff too. Yeah, it's very... That's incredible. It's very deep. Yes, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. Their kind of skills for this kind of stuff is mm-hmm. really impressive. Um in obviously a crime way, not in a, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we're, we're not, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's a range of different kind of relationship-based um, crimes of victimization and interpersonal violences, um, uh-huh. trafficking um, through location sharing, um, and then also, yeah, selling drugs, organizing fights, Filming of fights, filming of girl fights and girls being involved in fights is something that was present in every single one of my interviews. Um, Every single girl involved in my research had involvement in some kind of girl fight that was filmed online. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, and again, the amount of detail that goes into kind of assessing that fight after the fact when they watch it and how how they make decisions based on their performance in one fight about how they're going to fight another fight or whether they need to have a rematch or those different things mm-hmm. are really significant. It's, it's so interesting to hear all of that. And then to think back to what you said earlier in the interview about how, um, you have found that taking the phone away actually makes everything worse. And I say that because it's like in my delinquency class, I, I try to hammer home the idea of perspective to my students and that, um, even them as, as majority white, um, middle-class, solidly middle-class college students, that their perspective on stuff is very different from probably a lot of the people that they're going to be working for um, when they find their career. And, and so thinking as a parent, right? Like if, if my kids were older and they're having all this problem with social media, like the parental instinct is to just say, well, that phone is mine. Now you lost your phone forever. But like once you yeah. take their perspective into it, like that doesn't help. <laughs> like very, no. very clearly, taking the phone away isn't going to make any difference at all. Um, no, and one of the big problems with having the phone taken away, so for the girls and also for the um, gang involved kids in the UK, some of the, whom were also girls, is that that phone. If someone is controlling you through a phone, um, if that phone goes missing, or if the phone runs out of battery, or if it gets stolen, that can put the young person's family at risk and it can put them at further risk. Mm -hmm. So they have to be always be um, contactable. 
Because mm-hmm. if you if they can't contact them, then they start to get suspicious about are they going to the police? Are they seeking help somewhere? Like what are they doing? It's like the young people don't have a right to do what they want to do because this person is watching them through their phone mm-hmm. and they want them to be selling drugs or mm-hmm. be involved in sexual exploitation. Mm-hmm. So when I was working at the schools with the young people, when the phone was taken away in the schools, they would often fight the teachers who took it away from them. Wow. Knowing that the teachers can't harm them, right? The teachers are not going to stab them. The teachers are not going to go around to their sister's house or mm-hmm. their mom's house because they have lost this phone. Mm-hmm. But actually, that was a very real consequence for a phone that had been given to them as a way of kind of grooming them into something mm-hmm. that they had kind of, they hadn't agreed to be in control through, but that's what was happening. They were being cyber-stalked to the point where they couldn't monitor that, they couldn't choose their own actions almost mm-hmm. and where they were going. Mm-hmm. So there was a real, there's a real significant consequence to the young people who are being exploited through their phones when that phone is taken away. Mm-hmm. But for the girls here, when their phones are taken away by the court, what happens is that they will go to the informal street economy to buy a phone for cheap um, that isn't registered. Mm -hmm. And that leads them into all sorts of um, exploitation um, because people see that. So they see that this 14-year-old girl is looking for a phone in a dangerous part of town and it signals to potential abusers that there's a vulnerability that they can exploit. Because mm-hmm. they can say, well, I can give you this brand new iPhone. All you have to do mm-hmm. is work for me on the street mm-hmm. or get in this car with these men. Mm-hmm. Like, So that's what it leads to. And then as a result of that, um, the girls would be arrested for violating their probation. Mm-hmm. So it kind of spirals into this, they, they, they are involved in a girl fight. To prevent more girl fighting, the courts take away their phone. To get a phone, they run away to a dangerous part of town, which potentially signals a vulnerability to someone that can target them for further exploitation. Mm-hmm. Then girls get caught in this part of town or in a car with someone and they end up in detention because they violated their probation. Mm -hmm. If they hadn't taken away the phone, they wouldn't have had to go there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a really simple change that could be made that actually could protect girls Mm -hmm. from exploitation, but also further involvement in the juvenile justice system because often that is then linked to running away mm-hmm. and then detention happens mm-hmm. because they're a risk of running away. So therefore we'll lock them up in detention or we'll put them in a placement so they can't run away, mm-hmm. but they just creates this um, cycle. So there are just so many consequences of taking away a phone that it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but we only know that if we talk to the kids themselves yeah. and understand the role that the phone plays and that actually the phone isn't just like an item it's also some a place they can make legitimate money it's a place that they find safety and solace in in terms of like dealing with emotions mm-hmm. that may come up through music or through podcasts or through being able to reach out to friends it's also a way that they can use to get around safely in terms of mapping and mm-hmm. making sure they're on the phone to someone so that they feel safer like it has such a it's part of them. It's not something separate. And it's yeah. also not a privilege that, like, adults can just take away. It should be seen as, like, a space or as part of them that is, you know, isn't 
isn't just something there that adults can mm-hmm. like move or play with for their own kind of discipline. Yeah. So in the so in the videos for the education that we're doing, um, what we're suggesting is rather than taking away the phone, you need to kind of implement times where the whole family maybe doesn't have Wi-Fi or the whole place doesn't have Wi-Fi. But do that before something happens. Don't do it as a punishment. Do it as something that, in general, we all just do this. We have time without Wi-Fi. So Mm -hmm. we can start to understand how they respond to Wi-Fi, no Wi-Fi, or respond to lack of connectivity and whether that makes a big impact. And perhaps then we can start to understand that maybe there's something else going on that we need to ask questions about or support with. Mm -hmm. But it's also about... It not necessarily being seen as a punishment, but as something that's healthy and responsive to do for the whole family mm-hmm. um, or the whole unit, no matter where they are, mm-hmm. kind of. So that's what we're suggesting at the moment and trialing at the moment. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how, like, a, a lot of um, maybe knee-jerk reactions from parents um, that are... I imagine have them thinking that they're being good parents is to just be more and more punitive, right? Uh-huh. Um, instead of being more loving and more thoughtful and and trying to yeah. consider their kid's perspective, um, which is the harder thing to do. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to say, too, is that like this falls right in line with you know a century of crime policy, at least in the U.S., where... Um, this the state and like people acting on the state's behalf have never asked people um yeah what they need right it's always policies have always been created from the top down um i've been reading about the the kennedy and the johnson administrations and the war on poverty that then kind of laid the groundwork for the war on drugs and like nobody ever asked (laughs) anybody in these neighborhoods what they needed it was just they they brought in some sociologists, um, well-meaning, um, and then the politicians took that research for what it was, and then like we really think that black people have a poverty problem, and so that's what we're going to try to do, <laughs> and and we think we can uh, encourage them out of poverty by uh, law enforcement was the conclusion of the the Johnson administration, which doesn't make any sense, and they never asked anybody about like we're going to start dumping extra like more dollars into into policing in your community and never considered like what does the does the community even want this yeah so like the perspective thing is very interesting too and then from like the problem solving point too like like i think the the kids like clearly like no teenager has very good problem solving skills and so that that losing the phone would then cause further spiraling of, of antisocial behavior. Like, of course it, of course it does. But the reason why it does is because those kids lack that perspective too. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all very, it's all very fascinating to me. Um, yeah. But it's, it's kind of scary that there isn't more. And I think for me coming from Europe to here, that is something that I noticed that there is a lot less, um, asking people what they want and what they need within policy or, or changes to services or anything. And it's more based on patterns of crime or patterns of poverty that mm-hmm. are kind of outcomes rather than looking mm-hmm. at what's causing or preventing. Um, and I think that's also academically, I think within Europe, we have a more qualitative um, stance. It's not as quant-based and qualitative does tend to be perhaps more preventative and mm-hmm. more obviously consults people's views a lot more. Mm-hmm. So it's a big difference. 
anecdotally. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a perfect world, obviously, in Europe. Like, <laughs> there's absolutely um, people who don't take people's views into consideration all the time. But I think sometimes they try. Really? I'm more. shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. shocked. Anecdotally, I can tell you that um, as presentations have been coming in for CrimCon, and I've talked to people about, about it, and like my own... I guess, shock that this is going to be a successful event. We've gotten presentations from people from universities throughout Europe. And every time I tell that to somebody, the the and their, the reaction is always uh, like something like, they're doing such cool stuff in Europe. Or Europeans are doing so, so much better research <laughs> than Americans are. Um, so, I don't know. It, it's, it's interesting. It's a very interesting um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know about that. I do know like some countries in Europe don't have ethics and IRB boards like they do here. So that is a big <sighs> difference too, huh. that they are able to do different research. Really? Why yes. why not? Why don't they have <laughs> IRB boards? Do I know? don't know whether I can answer that. I can guess that it's more about trust uh-huh. and um I I don't I don't know. Like I so I'm part of a, the Eurogang network, mm-hmm. which are a group of um, American and European academics who basically they study gangs, but like more specifically, they started studying how gangs were presenting in Europe in a similar way to maybe U.S. gangs. And a lot of governments at the time when they started, kind of twenty years ago, twenty yeah, around twenty years ago, they were kind of denying that this was existence. Um, there was no gangs in Europe. It can't possibly be that's an American thing. Um, but obviously, we know that that's not true and that there are definitely presentations of gangs in nearly every European country. Um, hmm. So I know that the studies that some of the gang researchers can do, they can literally, um, continental Europe in particular, they can go out and do gang studies without asking for ethics approval. There may be, obviously, some kind of form within the university but it's not to the extent of ethics approvals or IOB boards here or in the UK that's so bizarre that that they would say that there's no gang problem (laughs) I just just don't I don't get it that's such a a, a politician uh, yes (laughs) the sky is falling and we're going to deny that the sky is falling not that there's any examples of that happening in the United States right now uh, at all. Um, so uh, have you have you been able to, to get into a classroom much? Yes. Well, I teach, I've taught, uh, how many have I taught now? Four. So I've taught four undergrad classes, um, two youth identities courses, um, and then uh, gender... Gender Advocacy and Juvenile Justice course, Mm -hmm. which um, trains the undergraduates to be advocates for girls in the system in the fall. And then in the spring semester, they go out and work with the girls. And then we supervise them whilst they're working with the girls in terms of they go, we don't go with them to work with the girls. But once a week, they come back to us and we give them a form of supervision, Mm -hmm. um, which looks at you know, safeguarding, but also self-care and, mm-hmm. and collectively as a class, like think about resources or um, supports or suggestions on what they can do to help mm-hmm. um, support the girl further. That's so And cool. I also taught a um, gangs and international perspective course online mm-hmm. over the summer. That's really cool. Um, I wish that yeah. we had something like that for, for my students. <laughs> 
Um, so how do your how do the students that you work with um, at your university how do they react to to your research and like this idea of the importance of, of phones? Have you been able to talk to them much about it? Well, I've no. <laughs> um, so which is totally okay. Yeah, so it's it's been difficult, I think, to um, bring my research into the classroom. I have done it a few times. So as part of my courses, especially with the Youth Identities course, which is um, like kind of a very broad-based um, sociological and psycholo- psychological theories um, and empirical studies about youth identities and social ecology, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um so I have I have been able to do that there, and I've spoken about gangs, I've spoken about phones and the girls, um, and always as one of the last classes that we do because I think I talk about my research throughout, but not specifically. Mm-hmm. And so I always leave the last couple of classes open, and then the mm-hmm. class pick what they want to have classes on. Mm-hmm. So they choose what their final two two lectures are going to be, and often they have chosen for me to present my own research which has been very interesting. Yeah. Um, but I think often what happens is the digital side of it almost gets lost a little bit because mm-hmm. the students are just really interested in hearing about gangs from the UK and how they're different. Really? Yeah. Because, again, it's about, like, their, their perception of the UK and that, you know, they find it very strange. Like, they can't think about the royal family at the same time <laughs> as factoring in crime in the UK. Um <laughs> So, yeah, it's a bit like, well, that didn't happen in Downton Abbey, so I don't get it. Like, <laughs> which is obviously a, an oversimplification, although, but yeah. Probably um, not really, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny, but I, I totally, yeah, I completely see it. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I've had students write a paper about Michigan before, and they and they weren't able to tell me where Detroit was. And I mean, they've lived here their entire lives, and Detroit has a reputation for being one of the the most dangerous cities in the United States. And they and it's a very easy state to find, right? And they yeah. could not. <laughs> so that they think that the UK is all they can't, they can't relate the royal family. It's just a funny like was Meghan Markle in a gang? But she's American. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny actually when I meet like young people as well. I met I met a boy. One of the first boys I met here. He said to me, "Do they still ride horses on the streets there in the UK?" <laughs> and I was like, um, "No." And I have another research participant who who calls me Pepper because I sound like Pepper Pig, and that's her only British reference. So she just calls me Pepper all the time. Oh no. <laughs> Which is funny. Um, yeah. But um, I do, I have been able to talk about my research more in the gender advocacy and juvenile justice class. And I think like, it's not only my research, but my experience as a practitioner, like I've used a lot in that course, like um, adapting that course to fit like an undergraduate student population has been mm-hmm. really interesting. Um, so it's only, that course has only been run in two places as far as I'm aware. So it was ran in, in New York where they trialed it and had a, a budget, large budget for it. And then we ran it at Rutgers Camden. And there was four of us who kind of developed it for um, Rutgers Camden based on the New York model. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, we didn't have quite the budget. <laughs> 
to develop it in the same way although it still went very well it was very it, you know it was successful it was challenging but it was still successful but to me it was very important that um i found a course that i could teach at a university level that included my practitioner experience that was amazing for me to be mm-hmm. able to do that and feel that it was helpful not only to the undergrads some of them loved it and were like and have actually done it twice mm-hmm. um because they wanted to do the part with the girls twice mm-hmm. which we allowed and some of the others have been like i never want to do this ever again and they were maybe training to be social workers or wanting to work with young people and just from working with one young person they're like nope this is not for me i had no idea i'm glad i did this but i'm not doing it again <laughs> well better they yeah, better they learned now <laughs> yeah definitely um but it, it's been a real really a great experience for me to yeah. be able to see um, a practitioner space within a university and I, I really appreciate that the university went with us and, and allowed us to do it and were supportive of it mm-hmm. um, and I recognise that many other universities would just say this is way too high risk like no <laughs> way <laughs> yeah I uh, I tried to get a branch of cure violence started at my university yeah. um, we had support um, from one of the, the main chapters um and we had support from the local police. We had support from a few organizations, and my university uh, squashed that flat. <laughs> and uh, rest in power that dream project of mine. Um, I, I have been working on an idea for students, uh, for my students, to teach them more about nonprofits. And so I'm, I'm going to have to pick your brain and maybe uh, invite you to come out to campus or come digitally to campus somehow. Um, my campus in the future, just to talk about your work in the UK. I think my students would find that really. Um, riveting, honestly, um, yeah. to give them just more, yeah, give them I more love background. Talking about myself as a practitioner, I'm much more comfortable talking about that than myself as an academic. So, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> I don't blame you. I I have started to to wonder if I need to like selectively tell people I'm an academic for other things that I'm doing because I I worry about like some of the stigma. Like even yeah. even with what my degree is in, sometimes I'll tell people it's in sociology, and sometimes I'll tell them criminology, mm. just depending on on the audience I'm in and how much do I want to entertain questions about like why is crime happening? <laughs> because yes. I've had okay, enough yeah. ordinary people tell me uh, why crime is happening. So yes. like we uh, this is a random story. I my wife really wanted a piano, and so we found a used piano. Um, she found it, I think, on like Facebook Marketplace or something. But the the previous owner came uh, to deliver it, and we're making small talk, and he found out what I do. And I I foolishly said I was a criminologist because he used to be a math professor or teacher someplace. And so then I got an earful about how we need to put Prozac in the water <laughs> for about half an hour with this guy. Just like we need to put everybody's. They say it's mental health and blah blah blah. I'm like, just please leave. <laughs> please deliver this piano and get out of my house so wow yeah yeah i i sometimes um so in the past i think i've been called like the worst dinner guest ever because (laughs) i would talk about gangs and particularly sexual violence a lot Mm -hmm. and people don't want to talk about that but when that was what my job was and i was studying it at the same time like that's what i would talk about so sometimes i would just say i was like a florist or something (laughs) and then they'd ask me questions about flowers and i wouldn't be able to answer them so (laughs) Yeah. Not, not a very good florist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
That's funny. Um, yeah, so I yeah. often describe myself as a pracademic. Um, <laughs> like some of my peers in the UK also call themselves a pracademic, and I think yeah. that's how I see myself too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's like, what I was going to ask you. I think that's definitely how I come across in a classroom as well. I don't think... I, I don't know, but from what my students tell me, I perhaps come across differently compared to their other um, professors, and not just mm-hmm. because I'm British, but like the way I interact with them and um, kind of see their education and, you know, I'm very invested in their progress and also in their and their them as human beings. Mm-hmm. So I do things about self-care in all of my um, teaching. Mm-hmm. Often because I, I teach about very sensitive subject matters, but also just because I think it's really important. Like the students are dealing with a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to talk to them about self-care and bring some more personal things into a classroom, I think is really helpful. Yeah, I was going to ask you if that's how you, if that's how you see yourself in the future moving forward um, once you're done with the degree. It, it seems like this is more a means to an end rather than like, this is my new identity as I'm a professor now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I go back and forth with this. Um, and obviously the lack of job market I'm about to enter has made me think about this even more. Because um, I... I I don't really know. Um, I would like to continue to teach undergrads, um, particularly at places like Rutgers Camden. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a very diverse population um, of students, many of whom are first-generation students. And that, um, Mm -hmm. as a first-generation student myself, that means a lot to me and Mm -hmm. to be able to help and support people um, who sometimes are dealing with more than what we could imagine. you know that's yeah. really important to me because I know that degrees are really helpful and support and support them in their future, but also for their own identity are very important. Yes. Um, so I don't know. Like I was planning to apply for jobs here and go the route of academia here, but looking for places that would prioritise civic engagement um, and being able to do civic engagement courses and service. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Then also thinking about maybe having to go back to the UK now, um, moving back home and looking at maybe jobs where I can do a few days kind of policy practitioner based training, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then also teach um, in a university too, I think would be really good Mm -hmm. because I really enjoy teaching at a university because I just love hearing people talk about their views and their like thoughts on different things and just having those really challenging conversations and demonstrating there's a way to have these conversations in a safe and supportive and respectful manner, which, you know, I don't shy away from those conversations mm-hmm. um, in a classroom. And and I think that that's really beneficial within a mm-hmm. university. So, yeah, I don't know is the answer to that. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether I could be a full-time practitioner um, just because um, of over 10 years of vicarious traumatization is very difficult to deal with and Mm. i think that um i you know i still want to be involved with young people and i still want to make sure that i can spend time with them and that i can do Mm. something that's helpful and beneficial for them but i think actually research is a good way to do that Mm -hmm. um if you can do it in the right way and make sure it's research that is connected to policy and practice and all of those things Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah but it's a, it's a shame. I would like to be a practitioner again. It's so much fun. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. 
It, it sounds like you've uh, you've paid your dues. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I have done that. No, I, I, my student population is over fifty percent first generation, so I, I definitely uh, appreciate where you're coming from, um, and even just like I, I made the choice to go the teaching route. Um, when I was working on my PhD and I teach a four, four now Wilkes university is, I don't have any grad students. Um, I have, I teach four classes a semester, uh, three preps. Um, and I have probably, I mean, the, before the pandemic, I, I probably would have had about a hundred students total, um, plus advising and like everything else that I do. Um, and they're just so fascinating. Um, it's, it's just so, it's so interesting to sit in my office with the door open. Like I kind of miss it now. And just hear yeah. hear the stuff that <laughs> they're talking about as people pass by my office. Um, yeah, I, I I mean that's one of my favorite parts of this job is like is the students. I hate the grading and and all the assessment stuff and all the politics, but yeah. being able to to like just have those moments with them is really cool. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Like, I have um, mentored a few of the students who have come to me to ask, like, what do you think I should do next? Like, should I be a practitioner or should I do a master's? Like, and be able to just sit down and have those conversations, I think, are really valuable. Um, and I really mm-hmm. enjoy that part of the work, too. And I also enjoy even the part of the work where maybe the students are struggling with their writing and they can't quite understand how they're supposed to write something. Like, they can answer the question to me verbally, but writing it down is something different. And I enjoy sitting with them and working that through and working out ways mm-hmm. um, that they can improve and find their own voice, which I think is really important. And, um, yeah, so I'm happy to do those kind of things. Um, and I think I'm good at it too, so that's important. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that you are. I'm, I'm sure your classes are amazing. I wish that I could... I, I wish I was at Rutgers so I could see some of your work firsthand for real. Thanks. Um, thank so you. thank you for taking the time out of your day to come on and talk to me oh. about this. Of course. This has been really interesting. So thank you for having me. Hey. Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.